This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. You've heard me say here time and again that the wheels of justice turn slowly, but nevertheless, they come to turn. We may now be seeing the end of Donald Trump as the January 6th committee is seeking a criminal referral for the former president. Now this is big stuff, folks, so let me break it all down for you. Tonight, major action by the January 6th committee that includes a new filing suggesting for the first time there is evidence to conclude former President Donald Trump may have committed crimes to stay in office. The House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol said on Wednesday that there was enough evidence to conclude that former President Donald J. Trump and some of his allies conspired to commit fraud and obstruction by misleading Americans about the outcome of the 2020 election and attempting to overturn the result. In a court filing in a civil case in California, the committee's lawyers for the first time laid out their theory of a potential criminal case against the former president. They said they had accumulated evidence demonstrating that Trump The conservative lawyer John Eastman and other allies could potentially be charged with criminal violations, including obstructing an official proceeding of Congress and conspiracy to defraud the American people. What you have here, it's a big deal. It's a formal legal brief by this congressional committee, the January 6th committee, saying there's a good faith basis to believe that Donald Trump committed felonies and that this lawyer, John Eastman, helped him do it. To have that kind of accusation from a congressional committee about a president happens so rarely in American history. And this is not like a felony, like ripping the mattress mattress tag off or something. This is as deadly serious as it gets, seditious conspiracy. And this filing is, you know, a solemn document. It's, you know, signed under oath, you know, subject to court sanctions for lying and stuff like that, as Sidney Powell and others have found out. The filing also said there was evidence that Trump's repeated lies that the election had been stolen amounted to common law fraud. The committee added information from its more than 550 interviews with state officials, Justice Department officials, and top aides to Mr. Trump, amongst others. It said, for example, that Jason Miller, Trump's senior camp advisor and asshole, had told the committee in a deposition that Trump had been told soon after election day by a campaign data expert in pretty blunt terms that he was going to lose, suggesting that Trump was well aware that his months of assertions about a stolen election were false. Trump subsequently said he disagreed with the data experts analysis, Miller said, because he thought he could win in court. The focus is is rightly and justly on 18 U.S.C., United States Code 371, which prohibits frauds, conspiracies to defraud the United States. And the language in that statutory provision is extremely broad. It says defraud the United States for in any manner, for any purpose. And what that means is it doesn't just have to involve money. And when you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if a president in the United States or anybody defrauded the U.S. government of a billion dollars, they'd go to jail. They'd be prosecuted. If they if they did it even for a million dollars, they'd go to jail. They'd be prosecuted. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, 
This is a lot worse than that because, you know, the government wouldn't miss a million dollars, wouldn't miss it, probably wouldn't miss a billion dollars. But what Donald Trump and his people, his minions tried to steal here was our democracy, our very ability to engage in self-governance. And there's a, you know, 1930s case by Chief Justice Taft that basically says that, you know, all you have to do is to conspire by fraud and deceit to obstruct a legitimate function of government. And that's exactly what right. they were trying to do here. The evidence gathered by the committee provides at a minimum a good faith basis for concluding that President Trump has violated the obstruction count, the filing written by Douglas N. Letter, the general counsel of the House said adding that the select committee also has a good faith basis for concluding that the president and members of his campaign engaged in a criminal conspiracy to defraud the United States. The filing said that a review of the materials may reveal that the president and members of his campaign engaged in common law fraud in connection with their efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Well, I think it's a very significant filing because it's the first time the committee has said out loud what the crimes may have been and pulled together the evidence of what that uh, crime may have looked like. I, I think that any prosecutor who looked at that evidence in the way I did and the way that the former prosecutors who are leading this investigation for the January 6th committee are doing, it, it, it really jumps out as fairly obvious potential crimes. Now, of course, the details of the evidence matters here, but one of the things they do in this filing that I think is, is so significant is they document all of the evidence that they have that is beginning to come into focus that they've been gathering from all of these sources. We know that because of some public statements that Donald Trump was pressuring Mike Pence to, uh, to refuse to certify the election. But I think some of the things that are coming into view are the hard part, which is showing that Donald Trump knew that it was false to say that he had lost the, that he'd won the election. Uh, and they document and list all of that evidence in this filing. The filing contains the clearest indication yet about the committee's direction as it weighs making a criminal referral to the Justice Department against Donald Trump and his allies. A step that could put pressure finally on Attorney General Merrick Garland to step up and finally fucking do something. Knock, knock. Merrick Garland, are you listening? This is clearly to me directed from the January 6th committee over to the Justice Department. If you look at this document, it almost reads like what an internal DOJ prosecution memo would read as. You see all the facts laid out. You see the legal arguments, why the committee says this was not just some sort of aggressive effort to challenge the election. This crossed the line into fraud and they lay it out with citations to case law, with citations to specific pieces of evidence. And I think what the committee is really trying to do here, and we've seen them do this in other contexts, Adam Schiff has done this explicitly, is essentially say, DOJ, don't wait for us. This is your job, DOJ. We've not seen any sign DOJ is doing that, but they're trying to change the political temperature. The filing laid out a sweeping account of the plot to overturn the election, which included false claims of election fraud, plans to put forward pro-Trump alternate electors, pressure various federal agencies to find irregularities, and ultimately to push Vice President Mike Pence in Congress to exploit the Electoral Count Act to keep a losing president in power. The court filings stem from a lawsuit filed by Eastman, who is trying to persuade a judge to block the committee's subpoena for documents in his possession, claiming a highly partisan invasion of his privacy. 
The committee issued a subpoena to Eastman in January, citing a memo he wrote laying out how Trump could use the vice president and Congress to try to invalidate the 2020 election results. The fact of the matter is that all this evidence points to one obvious fact. Trump knew that he lost the election. His aides and lawyers, at least the good lawyers, not the batshit insane ones like fucking Rudy Colludi Giuliani, all told Trump that it was over. And he knew it was over. And despite this knowledge, he carried on with his campaign to overturn the election because who the fuck was going to stop him? For either of these crimes, obstruction of an official proceeding or conspiracy to defraud the United States, each has slightly different elements. But I think the key factor that has always appeared maybe elusive is proving Donald Trump's intent, that he knew that what he was saying was fraudulent. When he was telling Mike Pence you should uh, change the outcome of the election, that he knew that was based on a lie and based on fraud. And so they document all the ways that he knew that this was false. Number one, his own cybersecurity chief at the Department of Homeland Security said so publicly. William Barr, his attorney general, said so publicly. The director of the Office of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, his appointee, said so publicly. Barr's successors at the Justice Department told him repeatedly there was no fraud. He had an internal campaign memo for the Trump campaign that concluded there was no fraud. And 61 out of 62 judges in all the court cases that were filed across the country found that there was no fraud. So here's what we know. Shortly after the 2020 election, as ballots were still being counted, the top data expert in President Donald J. Trump's re-election campaign told him bluntly that he's going to lose. In the weeks that followed, as Trump continued to insist that he had won, a senior Justice Department official told him repeatedly that his claims of widespread voting fraud were bullshit, ultimately warning him that they would hurt the country. Those concerns were echoed by his top White House lawyer, who told the president that he would be entering into a murder-suicide pact if he continued to pursue extreme plans to try to invalidate the results of the 2020 election. In laying out the account, the panel revealed the basis of what its investigators believe could be a criminal case against Trump. At its core is the argument that, in repeatedly rejecting the truth that he had lost the 2020 election, including all the assertions of his own campaign aides, White House lawyers, two successive attorney generals, and federal investigators, Donald Trump was not just being stubborn or ignorant about his defeat, he was knowingly fucking perpetrating a fraud on the United States. I don't see how the DOJ has ignored the mountain of evidence regarding Donald Trump's criminal responsibility for all of this that we see reported out every day. And, you know, you're exactly right when you're highlighting the evidence of Donald Trump's Trump's corrupt intent, because usually intent is hard to prove because we have no way of looking into the human mind to discern what somebody intends. So usually we have to infer intent from conduct and statements. But here, I think we have direct evidence of Donald Trump's corrupt intent, not only because Bill Barr told him there was no fraud undermining the election, not only because Chris Krebs announced that this was the most secure election in U.S. history, but because, remember, there was also reporting about a meeting Donald Trump had with some of his DOJ officials where, again, he was being told there was no fraud undermining the election. And he said words out of his own mouth, which actually constitute direct evidence. I don't care if there was no fraud. Just say there was and leave it up to me and my allies in Congress. 
Intent is usually hard to prove. It won't be if we can just get this case before 12 people in a jury box. Trump emerges as a man unable or unwilling to listen to his advisors even as they explain to him that he lost the election and that his multiple and varied claims to the contrary are not grounded in any fucking reality. In fact, one judge said there was not a scintilla of evidence that there is fraud. You know, it's like, Eamon, it's like um, there's an instruction in, um, that juries get about willful blindness. Yeah. You can't turn a blind eye to something when it's highly probable that it's true. If someone tells you that the world is round, you can't say the world is flat after, in, the, in the face of repeated evidence that it is round. If scientists tell you and they show you photos and you continue to persist that the world is flat, at some point a jury will believe that you're lying. At one point, Trump did not seem to care whether there was any evidence to support his claims of election fraud and questioned why he should not push for even more extreme steps, such as replacing the acting attorney general to challenge his loss. The president said something to the effect of, what do I have to lose? If I do this, what do I have to lose? Richard P. Donahue, a former top Justice Department official, told the committee in an interview. And I said, Mr. President, you have a great deal to lose. Is this really how you want your administration to end? You're gonna hurt the country. Pat A. Cipollone, the White House counsel, also tried to get Mr. Trump to stop pursuing these baseless claims of fraud. He pushed back against a plan from a rogue Justice Department lawyer, that's Jeffrey Clark, who wanted to distribute official letters to multiple state legislators, falsely alerting them that the election may have been stolen and urging them to reconsider certifying the election results. That letter that this guy wants to send, that letter is a murder-suicide pact, Cipollone told Trump, according to Donahue. It's going to damage everyone who touches it. And we should have nothing to do with that letter. I don't even want to see that letter again. Trump's own lawyers also threatened to quit rather than join what they viewed separately as a, quote, murder-suicide pact. That's also evidence from this new report out today. As for that murder-suicide pact, it's not just some dramatic political rhetoric. Think about who's talking. Those are the people who agreed with Donald Trump's agenda, who wanted him reelected, whose job and income depended on their work for him. And yet they concluded, according to this new finding in this new report, that further actions to steal the election as he was requesting at the time, well, one, they would fail. That's what makes it, quote unquote, suicide. And two, it would blow up in their face. It would be career suicide. And as the lawyers knew, it would be possible jail time if they went any further. With the midterm elections looking rather doomed for Democrats, the time for action is now, and the committee knows this. Public hearings outlining everything the committee has learned will begin in a few weeks. So now begins the real work. How will we successfully prosecute Donald Trump? Because the man is fucking Teflon Houdini, and he can wiggle from accountability like no man I've ever seen. After all, it doesn't matter what you know, it's what you can prove. Let's make sure it fucking sticks. And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is Michael D'Antonio, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Truth About Trump and Never Enough, a 2015 biography about the former president. 
His most recent work, High Crimes, The Corruption, Impunity, and Impeachment of Donald Trump, a chronicle of the president's impeachment, came out in October of 2020. All told, D'Antonio has spent untold hours interviewing Trump and has had a front row seat to the madness of King Donald and his disastrous effect on our nation. D'Antonio is also a frequent commentator on CNN. His essays and other writings have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and Esquire. In D'Antonio's mind, Trump is more akin to a psychopathic mob boss than anything else. And it's those skills, the lying, the bullying, the threats and intimidation that have kept him one step ahead of the law and any accountability for most of his life. But now, as the legal noose settles around Trump's neck, it's more a question of when will he be indicted. D'Antonio can provide rare insight into the inner workings of Trump like no other individual I've met, maybe other than myself. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Michael, President Biden's State of the Union address was in many ways defined not by his address, but by a photo that has gone viral that captures two of the most disgusting people in Congress, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, heckling the president. Now, the photo captures everything about our current political moment. The venom and the contempt in their faces, the lack of decorum, their stupidity, and all of it while Lindsey Graham just sat there watching helplessly. Now, these two nasty gremlins are the offspring of Donald Trump. If Reagan gave birth to a generation of conservatives, then these are Trump's demented spawn. Without him, they would not and they could not exist politically. I was ready to dismiss them as insane and irrelevant, but I'm reminded that they have growing constituencies, that they raise tons of money and actually represent a corner of the electorate that feels the exact same way. Are we doomed? I don't think we're doomed, although I really want you to feel free to say how you feel about it, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) How do I feel about it? Honestly, you know, if you look to see all of the pictures with them with their mouth open with the pucker that Donald Trump has, which is kind of like that you, you know, you sucked on a lemon and someone farted in your face. Honestly, if they were men, I'd like to stick my hand right down their throat, you know, with the way they opened their mouth and they were heckling this man. But, Michael, are we doomed? Yeah, I think we're in for a good decade of struggle, that's for sure. I don't talk to anyone who doesn't think that. And I'm in touch with a lot of Republicans and Democrats in Congress. And, you know, last week I heard from a political scientist at the University of Chicago who was insisting that his research found that there are a lot of people still in the middle who who want a good message that's uh, moderate and productive, but that those people really don't drive our elections and they don't especially drive the conversation. So you're right that these two women are generating huge amounts of money. Um, They get lots of attention. They, I think, discovered from Donald that trolling is a great business. You know, and you highlighted this when you talked about how there was this sense that the campaign in 2016 was really to uh, augment 
then candidate Trump's businesses to uh, increase his name recognition, to drive marketing. Um, he always knew that publicity was fungible. And our society has devolved to the point where fame is now the most valuable commodity. And these two women, they don't have any interest in the well-being of Americans. They are not committed to making progress against any of our shared problems. They're just on an ego trip and they're uh, generating lots of dough. Yeah, and there was to me nothing more disgusting than watching these two idiots, right? These two fucking assholes as the president is sitting there and mentioning his son's death from brain cancer, from talking about the burn pits that go on. This is a real issue. By the way, whether or not anybody else in the country believes that that's what caused the cancer, right? So it's important to the president by the way, it's his fucking podium. It's his State of the Union address. What they should have done if they were going to be this disgusting, this disrespectful to the office of the presidency. And I don't care that they're Republicans and he's Democrats. I would say the same thing if it was a Democrat doing it, right? The same way I said I thought it was improper that Nancy Pelosi ripped up um, Trump's State of the Union, right? She could have done it much more gracefully. And I was surprised because I have more, I expected more from her. But these two assholes, right? The guy's talking about his son who died of brain cancer and they start heckling him, talking about the 13 soldiers that were in coffins as a direct result of Afghanistan. That's the best that they could possibly do to disrespect not just the 13 service members that died, but also Joe Biden's son. Yeah, it's what am I missing? It's shockingly cruel. Um, but this is part of uh, how we've learned in the last five or six years uh, to some of us treat each other as if we're not human beings, to um, disrespect the other in a way that we never would have done before. And by the way, I think it's kind of bad politics. There are a lot of us who have lost friends and family to cancer, and we all wonder what was the cause of it. Um, it's often not certain what the cause is. And so they disrespected every American who has a suspicion that some toxic element affected their loved one and, and that they died. And this is what is really most surprising about all of this and most distressing is that we don't treat each other like human beings anymore. Um, did you wonder before the speech whether there would be this kind of display? I was thinking about it and couldn't anticipate it. Yeah, um, the answer is unfortunately yes. I did think about it and I knew that at least these two, I thought more people would. What did give me some, some level of hope for our future that were not doomed is that not only were they booed by the Democrats, but they were actually booed by many of their colleagues, right? Simply because it's a bipartisan issue. This is not a Democratic issue that there are men and women service members, you know, um, of, you know, of our military that are dying of cancer 
as a direct result of the burn pit exposure? I mean, this is not a Democrat issue. It's not a Republican issue. In fact, it's a bipartisan issue that is spoken about quite often. And now, now these two morons, these morons, it disgusts me that the rest of the world had to sit there and watch because they do. Everyone in the world is interested right now in U.S. politics. They were interested in what Joe Biden's speech was going to be about, especially in light of what's going on in the Ukraine, especially what's going on um, in light of, you know, um, countries like Germany um, joining uh, with the SWIFT, um, you know, and the you know, various different um, sanctions that are being imposed upon Putin. And so these two idiots decide to take it upon themselves to make it not a partisan issue, but an issue about them. And yes, they're campaigning off of it. They're raising money off of the suffering, the pain. Look, anybody who, you know, knows somebody, family or otherwise, who has or had cancer, and that affects... As far as I can figure, you know, as far as I can figure, there's nobody in this entire world that's not affected by knowing somebody or having a loved one who died of cancer, regardless of the age. These two basically shit on them for whatever reason that they thought it would be beneficial. And the fact that people in other countries were watching this vulgar and stupid display, this thoughtless display of stupidity right in our congress in you know during a state of the union address this isn't like in england where at least they're respectful when they beat each other up in parliament <laughs> right. right you know they do it with a mr bean type of a of a comment this was just disgraceful and they should be not just censored they should be prevented from ever holding office and not because that they're both republican and obviously being a Democrat myself forever, despite what people may think, they should be censored and thrown out simply because their actions and their and their disrespect for the office of the presidency is so significant that they should not be permitted to hold office. But sadly, they're raising money off of it, and they probably increase their popularity as a direct result as well. Well, you know, you said a couple of things that I think are fascinating. One is that, yes, we've seen the displays in the British Parliament during question time. But those displays are really often very erudite. Those people speak intelligently. They make funny jokes. They're actually entertaining in a way that's not mean-spirited. And their criticisms are based on legitimate disagreements over policy. In this case, these women were just trolling. They also, you know, we've seen over the decades, so many officials decide that they don't have to lead their constituencies to a higher plane, that rather than uh, set aside this terrible rhetoric, which used to be common practice, it used to be on the left and the right, that you just didn't get into this kind of craziness because you didn't want to lead the people in that direction. There are enough folks out there who are the ones giving money to these these women, who are the ones going to pull the lever at the uh, in the voting booth for them, who will be persuaded 
you know, it's like all those conspiracy theories that people believe. In the old days, no politician would indulge in that kind of talk because it's dangerous. <laughs> but these days, um, those are the ones who are the most popular. And, and the ones who say the most extreme things are rewarded. You saw, was it last week that Jim Jordan agreed with the former president that there were officials in the Hillary Clamp campaign that might deserve execution? This was not something that, can you imagine any member of Congress saying that in the 1980s or even the 90s? I, I don't I don't know. Maybe somebody should turn around and talk about Jim Jordan and talk about what he did at the University of Ohio as an assistant gym coach when he turned a blind eye to the sexual exploitation, you know, of some of his wrestling, um, you know, students, the people, you know, that were entrusted under his and others care. He turns a blind eye. You know what? In some countries, that is an execute uh, an execution. Um, or execute uh, an execution, you know, um, you know, it, result or something, you know. I mean, what he did was just disgraceful, turning a blind eye. So it's funny how everybody, right, has something to say about something without acknowledging their own, right, their own culpability in other events. I mean, if I was Jim Jordan, I would learn to shut the fuck up a little bit, right? I mean, you know, he, first of all, talk about disrespect for the house. Yeah. The guy doesn't own a goddamn jacket, right? I think it's wrong if you're there, right, and you're sitting in the people's house, that it's my house, not yours. You want to come into my house? There should be rules. No sneakers, no T-shirts, wear a goddamn jacket. We have restaurants here in Manhattan, right. as an example. You can't come in unless you're dressed in a jacket. That's proper attire. This idiot still thinks that he's on the wrestling mat, right? And I can tell you there's thousands of male students... Jim, you know, um, wrestling students at these various different universities, especially Ohio State, that are thankful that he's not. Yeah. All right. So before he wants to sit there and castigate others, look at yourself. Start to reflect a little bit about your own improprieties. And I believe he should be held accountable for those days. And let's bring forth all the students. Listen, if any of the kids that were wrestling or know any of the information, reach out to us here at Maya Culpa. Hit me on Instagram, right? Michael Cohen 2.0. Go to me at Twitter at Michael Cohen 212. Let's start throwing out some names. Let's get some of these people on television, on some of these podcasts. And let's expose exactly who these people are because they're so fast to point the finger at you and at me and the things that we did. Yeah, I did. I paid a porn star to pull the president's mushroom pecker. I did. And for that, I end up going to prison. All right. What about this piece of shit that turns a blind eye to students, to children? Serious? No, those are serious crimes. And, you know, you're just bringing attention to the fact that our justice system is pretty warped, you know, that you can be punished for a certain crime that really, I mean, it, it did harm, but not to the welfare of human beings whose lives were crushed by sexual abuse. There's, there's no comparison. But yet this guy gets away with everything, as so many other people get away with terrible things, and is now 
trying to criticize others as if he has any standing to do that. But he represents, don't you think, this slash and burn approach to politics that has absolutely nothing to do with public service. You know, it, it only is about his ego. It's about maintaining his power. You know, I um, talked with a member of Congress last week and he said to me, what is wrong with these people? Don't they think they could get a job if they weren't reelected? Are they ever? <laughs> no, no, many of them couldn't. What, the, what are they capable of doing? Right. Where would they end up getting any respect from anyone? They yeah. went into politics. I hate to say it because they couldn't find another job. Right. In all fairness, I mean, I say this about Donald Trump's kids all the time. If it wasn't they came to work for daddy, where would they be? Probably a fucking greeter at, a, at one of these department stores. Yep. Oh, hi, how are you? You know, oh, aisle four. Uh, um, hold on a second. Let me look it up, right? Uh, aisle six. Uh, no, aisle seven. I mean, because they're, they're fucking stupid. Now, all of a sudden, you got Jared Kushner, who is possibly one of the dumbest people, is out there now with a $3 billion hedge fund that he's bringing in money from, from Saudi Arabia and, and the Middle East simply because they made deals when he was senior advisor to the president? What? The guy who made the worst fucking deal in real estate history, yeah. 666 Fifth Avenue, and managed to somehow get the Middle East to bail him and his family out of that. Otherwise, they'd be broke. Listen, our country's upside down, which, by the way, is going to be my next book, you know, that's going to come out called The Department of Injustice, which talks about exactly what you said about just how broken our system is and what happens when you have a president like the former president who is hell-bent on power and then weaponizes the Justice Department to, in essence, be his hit squad, right? And then what damage that they can do. And some of the information that I've been able to uncover is absolutely shocking, you know, from FBI agents all the way to some of these prosecutors, you know, that went ahead 48 hours to give somebody notice, no IRS. I mean, it's the book is, in my opinion, is fascinating the way it's coming out. And I hope people take to it the way they did to Disloyal. And of course, I tell this to you simply because you're a writer yourself. Well, I'm, I can't wait to read it. And I think that um, the only thing that prevented the politicization or extreme politicization of the Justice Department in the past was the honor of the president. So an, an honorable president would take care not to do that. A dishonorable one would weaponize it. You know, we saw Nixon do it and come to uh, a disastrous end because of it. But we saw Donald Trump sort of get away with it. You know, I'm, yeah. you know, William Barr is going to come out with his book momentarily, and it'll be fascinating to see what he reveals. But our system is broken. You know, if, you know, that's one thing that a wrecking ball like Trump can reveal. He exploits all of the seams in a system. He figures out where's the weak spot? How can I go into that and defy the norms? And you can't catch me because the system's not set up to anticipate such an immoral uh, person. So, so now we, we're going to have to go look at our justice system and tighten it up so it can't be abused. 
You know, I too am curious about Bill Barr's upcoming book. Not that I would buy it and read it because I don't believe it's going to be honest. Like John Bolton's book, I didn't find to be honest. I read it while I was stuck in solitary confinement the second time after the unconstitutional remand. Uh, it was the only book I was able to get my hand on. It was fucking painful to read. It was like pulling nose hair. It hurt turning the pages. He's, you know, um, he's so self-laudatory. Me this, me that. And I guarantee Bill Barr... That's the thing, and you'll acknowledge it, was why Disloyal was so successful, because it was honest, right? Yeah. I, I tell the truth about myself and the mistakes that I made. There's no way that Bill Barr is going to be doing that, and I just think it's going to be a book that's going to try to, like what John Bolton did, deflect on all his deficiencies onto somebody else. And they learned that very well from you know their Fuhrer, from Donald. But just moving on for a second, Michael, the narrative from both the GOP and Donald Trump is that if he were president, Vladimir Putin would never have dared to invade Ukraine. Now, this assertion was blown to bits by John Bolton, who surprisingly came to President Biden's defense and dismissed Trump by declaring that the former president could barely find the country on a map. And that happens to be true. Now, despite this broadside against Trump, his poll numbers are underwater, partly because of his thought and the Republicans, as well as Trump, are just pummeling him. Right. If you could project forward, will the Russian invasion prove to be Biden's Iranian hostage crisis? Or do you think it represents an opportunity for him to reset and unify the nation? Well, we saw last night with the State of the Union address that he was trying, reaching for that unity element. And to their credit, a lot of Republicans were with him on that. And you know, they were the same ones that looked at uh, Boebert and Green and, and in disgust, and they stood up when Biden was talking about Ukraine, talking about the American commitment. The guy is, uh, no matter what else you say about him, uh, probably our most experienced political figure when it comes to foreign affairs. He's been engaged since the 70s, and I think he knows what he's looking at. So the question then becomes, will Americans rally behind him? Will they be inspired in part by what they're seeing come from Ukraine? I think people are looking at Zelensky, that guy that Trump tried to terrorize, and seeing in him a very heroic, charismatic, genuine leader, we relate to the Ukrainians. Um, this whole idea that Putin is someone we should get along with, as Donald tried to persuade us, and that Tucker Carlson wants us to believe, has been blown to bits. You know, he is fully revealed for all to see as a murderous tyrant who would level Ukraine if he needed to, to get control in, in order to subjugate it. So today, the day after the State of the Union, I'd put my money on the unifying image. I don't think he's going to go the way of the Iran hostage crisis. I mean, look at all the Americans who are agitating for boots on the ground and uh, a no-fly zone. So neither one of those is a very good idea right now, but it shows where people's hearts are and it 
means that we're behind him doing whatever he can do. And, you know, it, it he's not a perfect president. He's had some stumbles, but I think people will get behind him on this and may give him some slack on the other problems. So, Michael, you're right. He's not a perfect president. I'm not a perfect husband. I wasn't a perfect child. I clearly wasn't a perfect employee of Donald and the Trump organization, right? Who is a perfect president? No one, no one. And right. none of us are perfect people. And that's why we're human, yeah. right? To err, you know, to err is human, right? To forgive is divine. However, how do you forgive someone like Donald Trump who doesn't know when enough is enough. He tried to perpetuate the big lie. It went on. He grifted off of it for millions and millions of dollars off of these stupid fools that are just constantly giving him money. And, um, and how about the ones that weren't intending to give him constant, <laughs> right? That it just kept repeating because there was somewhere buried into it a small box that unless you checked it, it took the money from you every single month and they had to give back like what, $150 million? If that's not enough to get people to stop making donations, I don't know what is. But if you listen to Donald, and I did at that CPAC right, um, last Saturday, and you sit and you listen to some of the shit that comes out of his mouth, it's like his ass must be jealous. It's that <laughs> stupid. He keeps repeating these false accusations, right, that Biden isn't the legitimate president, that he is. And under his administration, Russia respected America, just like every other country respected America while he was the president. But Joe Biden is seen as weak, right? And as everyone understands, and this is, of course, Trump's words, this horrific disaster would never have happened if our election was not rigged and if I was the president. Well, Donald, you're not the president because... You lost, you fucking crybaby. You lost because you sucked, right? Because you cozied up to our adversaries, right, at the expense of our allies. Now, look, I acknowledge Joe Biden is far from perfect, but let's just look at this and what he's doing so far. And I think, I think we have to give him at least an A-, minus, yeah. right? Some people want, oh, you know, I'm a, uh, you know, I got to give him an A+. Plus. He's not an A-plus guy. Right. But I give him an A minus so far. I think everything that he's doing is right on track. He has unified all of the people that Donald shit on. Right. The chancellor of Germany, England, France. Right. Every single one of them. Donald shit on them for who? Kim Jong Un, Vladimir Putin. For Erdogan, for you know, for um, uh, which, uh, for uh, what? Uh, who else am I thinking of? Uh, there's there's like a half a dozen of these guys. You know, um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, we can keep going on. Duarte. I mean, it didn't make a difference. Whoever was a dictator, Donald was in love with. Ah, oh, it's a love. It's a love fest. A love fest. There were no missiles going up in the air from North Korea, right? Quite frankly, they respect me. They fear me. No, they don't, you fucking fool. They were testing the shit inside of a mountain, yeah. right? And as soon as you were out, they were going to do it whether you were in or out. They're shooting them off to show you. I mean, do you think that they developed in a period of a month under Joe Biden's administration a supersonic rocket? No, those, those were in development for years. And, you know, um, I think that this invasion of Ukraine 
came about because Putin had finally concluded in his mind that America was fully divided, that not only was the former president on his side, all of his followers were on Putin's side. And I think he calculated that the Republican Party had been converted. So, you know, NATO had been weakened by Trump's treatment of the NATO allies. And there was a sense that they no, there no longer was this unity. And I know that Putin was watching the address last night, wondering would the Republican side of, the, of that hall stand up and applaud when he went after Putin. And of course they did, which is a wonderful sign. And it indicates that, you know, in about a year's time, Biden has persuaded at least the vast majority of Republicans in Congress that he can lead on the foreign stage. And believe me, those members were never happy with what Donald was doing abroad, what he did in Finland, saying that he believed Putin and didn't believe our intelligence agencies. Well, look what the intelligence agencies did in the case of Ukraine. They empowered Biden to go out there and predict, oh, the Russians are going to try a false flag operation. They're going to try and claim that Ukraine attacked them. They couldn't get away with it. And I think that that's very impressive. This is a uh, a new day. I, I know the intelligence folks have probably been waiting, feeling quite injured for the last five years, feeling keeping their heads down. The same is definitely. Yeah. Well, they don't act like it. They, yeah, they don't act like it sometimes. To be very honest with you, but you know, for me, Michael, the most galling comments from Trump and the GOP are those that assert that Joe Biden has not done enough to arm the Ukrainian government to defend itself. Now, for the way I see it, it's astonishing how they can gaslight the American people in this manner when it was Trump who was the one who tried to extort the Ukrainian president in the first place, all right? If you would, discuss this with me and my listeners. And I want to reflect back that this is the $400 million that was supposed to go in financial aid uh, to uh, Ukraine for military armaments that Trump was holding over their head unless they opened up an investigation into his political rival, right, Joe Biden at the time, and his son, Hunter. Well, what's so interesting about this and, and you would find it familiar, I think, from your days working in Trump Tower, is that... Why are you reminding uh, me of that? that? Is that there was this <laughs> long, complicated scheme that involved a lot of people. And it, it actually started a year prior to us finding out about it with Lev and Igor and then uh, Rudy getting involved in testing the Ukrainians to see, can we bring them into our corner? Can we get them talking about how the ambassador in Ukraine is bad and how she should be taken out of there? And eventually they discovered that there were some old Ukrainian politicians who could be manipulated. They watched the election take place in April. Then come May, they start saying, well, high-ranking American officials may not come to Zelensky's inauguration. There are things we want accomplished that we don't, we don't see being accomplished. A lot of people don't understand that Rick Perry went over there trying to get oil contracts for from his Texas petroleum business buddies. You know, the, he was grifting even back then. And by June of the year when, uh, I guess it was 2019, um, 
the Ukrainians were sending up flares, telling people in Washington, something's happening with this aid. We're supposed to be getting these Javelin missiles to attack Russian tanks. Where is the aid? Hundreds of millions of dollars worth of weapons. Uh, then we get into July. It's still not coming. And people are getting on the phone, talking to folks like John Bolton and people in the White House. And, and then we see that the president himself performs this shakedown. All you know, So I'm wondering if the first time around, people didn't know where Ukraine was, didn't know the danger that they were in, didn't understand that this was a potentially lethal thing that the American president was doing. He was really playing with the lives of 40 million Ukrainians by depriving them of national defense. And this guy Zelensky, you know, you see him, he was a television actor and comedian, and all of a sudden he's on the world stage. I think he was probably overwhelmed by the situation. He'd only been president there a couple of months, um, but still he played it well enough that he didn't give the extortion demand, didn't give in to it, didn't. No, the other thing is that he was being asked to lie. He was being asked not to present even legitimate information about the Bidens. He was supposed to create it out of whole cloth and then therefore help Trump defeat Biden in the 2020 election. It was so fraudulent, such an abuse of power, but at the time that it took place, and at the time I think of the first impeachment, it was beyond most Americans' ability to grasp. And you had people like Jim Jordan muddying the waters, uh, conducting those crazy protests outside and inside a secure facility so that no one could make any sense of any of it. And he survived. Yep, that, that he did, and I'll tell you, Knowing Trump as well as I do, and you know you you know him as a well. Little. I know him a little a little bit, right? Knowing him as well as I do, that fat fucking elephant doesn't forget a goddamn thing. All right, and rest assured, if he was president right now, he would not be coming to the aid of Ukraine at all. Right. He could say whatever he wants about Putin wouldn't dare because right he. Putin would know right off the rip that Trump was not going to help Zelensky or Ukraine because they didn't help him to destroy Joe Biden. And that's how Donald Trump's brain thinks, folks. That's exactly how it thinks that you didn't scratch my back. I want someone to shoot a hole through yours. That's just how he thinks. Even if it put at risk 40 million Ukrainian lives, he doesn't care. I mean, people don't understand that. Not only does he not care about the people of Ukraine, he doesn't care about the people of America. No. And he's certainly going to say, well, I'm not going to send American troops to go fight Ukraine's problem. They didn't back me. I'm not sending, I'm not going to send a single bullet, right? Actually, I'll send one bullet and I'm going to send it to Zelensky and it's going to say Trump on it. And when he finally realizes he lost his country, he should use that bullet to shoot himself. That's what Trump is thinking in his head because he's sick. But I do want to ask you this. Biden swore last night that the red line for sending American troops was for Putin to expand even one inch westward into NATO territory. 
Do you think that Putin has designs on Poland, Latvia, and other former Eastern Bloc NATO members? And if that happens, it then becomes World War III, and everything is on the table. What do you think's stopping him if we let him just walk into Kiev? What do you think is going to stop him from advancing now into the NATO territories? That's such a important question. You know, I, I think that Poland is beyond his imagination right now. I mean, if he could reconstitute the Soviet Union, you know that that's what he wants to do. He, you know, this whole distorted version of history he has, where he denies the fact that Ukraine is a country and uh, wants to go back to 1912, um, that includes in his imagination something like Poland. But I think in his realpolitik, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia may be on the table because they border directly on Russia. I think that he can imagine um, taking over those countries. He, I think, would assume that we don't care so much about these three little countries that actually are NATO members, so we would care about them. And I think that this talking point of one square inch is something that all the NATO leaders have adopted. So we're on the same page with this. Biden was actually, I think, the last one to use it. Um, and I think that there is, on some levels, an itch to have this conflict. That you know, this may be the last vestige of authoritarianism that we would face in control of a nuclear weapon, setting China aside. I think China is a more rational actor, but having this gigantic arsenal in Putin's hand is very dangerous. And I don't know that we wanna risk all out nuclear war, but I certainly think defending those three countries is definitely gonna happen. I don't think that he's going to make a move and not meet a response. Yeah. And this is this is a real serious issue yeah. that needs to be debated. Right. Um, who wants to see World War Three? Because when you have somebody like Putin with the extensive nuclear arsenal that he is in control. Of. Now, here's something that's interesting. We don't even know whether or not that nuclear arsenal is operational. Right. You know, one of the things you may have noticed in that 40 mile caravan <laughs> of, you know, of military machinery, much of it is old. I mean, like really old, outdated sort of shit, right? That, okay, they repaired it. They put some new parts onto it. But what ended up happening on that drive? It broke down. So now you have a 40-mile freight line of, um, I don't know, supplies. It could be, you know, military gear. I, I don't know, obviously, because it's all covered. But my curiosity is if I was Zelensky, I would send in a dozen and a half drones right in the middle of the night with some infrared and I would carpet bomb 40 miles. I mean, that's like that's like a 10 minute maximum mission, right, for just one drone following the other <laughs> after another and carpet bomb, bomb the ones at the end, bomb the ones at the front, collapse the center, right? And then because of what's inside of these things, chances are, and they're so close to one another, one catches fire, the heat causes the other to explode, and you have a chain reaction. 
you got 40 miles worth of armament that's now useless. That just becomes garbage. And then, look, I don't want to see these Russian soldiers die. I want to be very clear about that. You know, many of them don't even know why the hell they're there. And when they do, I don't know if you saw this, there's like, you know, they captured a whole bunch of Russian soldiers the other day, the Ukrainians, and they were sitting down and they're feeding them. Why? They look identical. Mm -hmm. Some of them are actually related. <laughs> you know, they have their cousins living in, in Russia. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know it because my wife was originally born in the Ukraine. It was the former Soviet Union at the time. But, you know, her, um, her town was called Chernovtsi, which is, you know, um, in, you know, in Ukraine by the uh, Moldova um, border. At one point in time, it was part of Moldova. Then it became part of Ukraine mm -hmm. back and forth over the years. But it's part of the Ukraine. They have relatives that are in Moldova. They have uh, relatives that are in Romania. Uh, and, you know, probably they have cousins that end up moving to yeah. Russia because they all speak the same language. They look the same. You know, it reminds me like when Serbia and Kosovo were fighting one another. They're, they're cousins, for God's sakes. So it's very hard to go in and to kill your relative. And they don't even understand why they're there. Well, it, I think what you're right uh in Kosovo, the people there still don't quite understand how it is that things could have gotten so turned around that neighbor was killing neighbor. But one of the things that happened was ruthless leadership that ignited strife. And you take one killing and encourage people to respond with another killing. And pretty soon you do have family members shooting at each other. And your observation about the condition of the Russian military, the attitudes and morale of the Russian enlisted man, it's got to be very poor. You know, you're right that they have a lot of old stuff that is breaking down on the road, and it may be why that 40-mile convoy hasn't reached its destination yet, is that, uh, as the generals in the United States say, amateurs focus on the battle, uh, professionals focus on logistics. They focus on supply. Right. How do I maintain this army going forward and not get them so strung out that they're completely vulnerable? And so now we're cheering these Ukrainians who are taking out Russian units with small arms, primarily. Uh, but we have to, I think, acknowledge too that the tragedy that awaits is that a frustrated Russian military acting on the orders of Putin will just start indiscriminately attacking, uh, shelling. Primarily, they'll, they'll go with shelling and uh, cruise missiles, civilian areas. And that's already started. So we've seen that. It's already started, right. yeah. Yeah, I saw that they bombed uh, in Kharkov. They bombed uh, the university. You know, they hit a bunch of buildings. Uh, you know, it's 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 really terrible. But moving on for a second, Mike. Last week, you tweeted that Putin is now calling the Ukrainian government drug dealers. Does that sound familiar, <laughs> right? And so on. Do we not remember when Trump came down the escalator, right? What if he added? And some, I assume, are good people. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Authoritarians tend to talk alike. Right. I mean, Trump brags about his very close relationship with Vladimir Putin. And beyond the insults, what other traits do you, you know, do you think that they share uh, from a pathological standpoint? Well, that's really interesting. I, 
before you reference pathology, the first thing that came to mind is, well, they're not equal in, in intelligence because we know, no. <laughs> we know one of them is much smarter. Um, I think they're both very ruthless men. By the way, Vladimir, if you're listening to the show, which I know you do, right, it's you who's smarter, <laughs> just so I want it to be very clear. <laughs> both Mr. D'Antonio and Michael Cohen acknowledge you are significantly brighter than the dope. Well, he is. Um, but they're both ruthless. Don't you think that Donald would have used murder in the way that Putin has against his political enemies? I, I think given the option, he, it, I'm not sure he would have resisted it. I think the greediness is similar. This um, pathological need for more and more and more and the whatever the hole is in their souls that can never be filled up, I think is also something they share. Uh, as we see Putin become more unhinged, I think they're becoming more and more alike in the inability to control themselves, uh, this personalization of everything. You know, Putin didn't do that in the past, although we do know that they both really hated Hillary in the end. What's, what's so funny is, you know, Hillary got under Putin's skin and he was a misogynist. I think Donald is a misogynist. Um, I guess if we go down the line, we can find a lot of things that. Wait, wait, you think Donald's a misogynist? <laughs> Michael, Michael, this is mea culpa. We tell it like we it know. is. Let me be very clear. We know that Donald is a misogynist. Yeah. We know that he's racist. We know that he's sexist. We know that he's xenophobic and homophobic and Islamophobic and anti-Semitic as well. That's just who he is. He is an immoral human being who cares for no one or anything other than himself. Plain and simple. Drop the yeah, mic. Yeah, I agree. I agree entirely. The only... You know, what's funny is, and this is the way that he takes advantage. Um, those of us who are sort of devoted to being fair, we wind up hedging the issue. We talk around it a little bit because we don't want to be irrational ourselves and we want to be fair. Um, but that puts us in the spot of our politeness means that we don't fight back enough and that we don't identify what's really going on. And, and you're right about what's really been going on. My only hesitation sometimes is that, I wonder if the guy has anything that's heartfelt. You know, does he genuinely hate that list of people or is it just useful to hate those people? I, I sometimes get confused, you know, one, one yeah, don't don't be don't yeah don't be confused. He actually hates them all. He has no he has no use. How that doesn't mean, for example, that he won't bring on a female, right? If there's a benefit to him, yeah. he then doesn't care about her her you know her gender. Um, he doesn't care you know if you're a homosexual if there's a way for him to benefit from it. Other than that, he has no use for you, right? Only those specific individuals that he has a use for is, you know, who he, who he cares about. And even when he cares about you, he doesn't. It's really about him and what you bring to the table for well, him. As, as your experience amply illustrates, he can lead 
people that he supposedly cares about into hell. <laughs> you know, you wind up in a personal, legal, uh, public hell because you've held up your part of the relationship and he won't. This is this is all about what he can drain from you or drain from a certain situation. And again, that's the um, pathology. I was, I was trying to get put my uh, finger on exactly the right word because the sociopathy, the fact that he is, both of these men are sociopaths. You know, they have no concept of other human beings. I wonder sometimes if they have even a concept of their own humanity or if they're just so lost that they're like animals who just remorselessly chew up other people, uh, feed on whatever is in front of them, and then move on. Yeah, they both have a very specific goal in mind. And I think there's a differentiating um, goal that the two of them have. Putin is all about the power. Yeah. He wants to recreate the former Soviet Union. He wants to, in essence, be a czar. Yeah. He wants to be you know, the dictator, the monarch, the supreme leader of the Soviet Union, the way it used to be, for example, like under Tsar Nicholas yeah. and so yeah. on. That's what he wants to be. Trump, it's all about the money, right? He, <laughs> he literally only cares. And whereas Putin, and I don't care what anybody says, Putin doesn't have $200 billion, as they're now saying that he does. And, you know, that's a sick amount of money for a guy who had nothing before becoming the president to acquire. I agree with that. It's a tremendous amount of money. I believe he has $2 trillion. Really? Uh, and it's hidden all... Yeah, I think he is, hands down, the richest man in the world times a multiple. He controls at least 25% of every single um, company, you know, of worth, you know, that's in Russia. He controls it from the Sergut Neftegas all the way to Yukos, all the way to, you know, um, y you name it. Every one of these oligarchs are basically holding his money. And I think that's the position of the United States. Um, you know, and he controls 25% of each and every one. I'll never forget sitting in the office, there was a New York Times photo of it was like 20 uh, oil trucks that were heading 15 in one direction, you know, and five in another. And the five, according to the report, was, you know, going to Putin's private, you know, um, holding area. And the other 15 were for the country and for export. That just has to give you an idea of how much money. And this guy's been doing it for how many years? Rest assured, his, his numbers on what he... So for him, it's not about money. Oh, my God, they confiscated Putin's <laughs> boat. He could blow that fucking boat up today, tomorrow, and every day for a year and buy a new one and still not touch his principle. So, you know, people have to understand, for Putin, it's not about the money anymore. He wants more than the money. He wants, he wants the Soviet Union back, and he wants to be its leader. But, you know, I want to talk about something for a second, Michael, because you wrote a piece for CNN last week that looked at what Trump's lavish praise for Putin revealed. Now, later in the tweet you wrote, and I'm going to quote it, that two deranged men could have such an effect on our world is tragic. 
What's behind all of this for Trump? I mean, it seems to go far beyond anything remotely sane. What were you trying to point out there? Well, I think that, first of all, this is another taboo that we're not supposed to cross, but I'll cross it with you because I think it's partly true. I think that we could be looking at one version, a, a new version of Hitler and Mussolini. You know, so one of them, it, maybe Putin is the Hitler character whose uh, rage and evil is going to be targeted at mass killings and conquest, uh, territorial conquest. I think Mussolini was a more fantastical figure. He may have wanted conquest, but he didn't have the resources to achieve it. And in his experience, I think it was all about his personal aggrandizement. Both were fascists. Um, both were ultimately, you know, part of the axis of evil. And I am shocked personally that our world now has two figures who at least resemble those men in their pathology. And I think in G in China, we don't know yet what we're facing, but his reluctance to join the world against Russia is frightening. So could we have imagined um, in 2010 that this is where we would be today? I think not. And it's it's really shocking to me. You know, I I, I do remember reflecting on the fact that we were losing the generation that remembered World War II. You know, the, the adults who lived through that were the ones who kept us focused on this potential for evil. Once you lose people with that institutional memory, with that personal memory, um, I think you run the risk of allowing it to come back. And uh, I also have always objected to this idea that America is somehow immune to authoritarianism or immune to a demagogue. We're not. We're human beings just like everybody else. As you always point out, we're frail. We're, um, we do wrong. We do evil things. We're just as human as any other people. Um, and it's in believing that we're not and believing that that may not ever happen again, that we're fools. And, and now we foolishly allowed this damage to be done to our planet. And I'll tell you something, our forefathers recognized that there could one day be a president who wants to be more than a president, which of course is how we had the creation of the tripartite system of government, which of course, what was Trump doing the whole time? He was basically taking apart um, piece by piece. The judiciary doesn't matter. I don't have to acknowledge, you know, judicial subpoenas, the, the uh, you know, the legislative, you know, body. It's all about the executive body to him. I can do what I want. I'm the president. And then when you get a willing and complicit attorney general like Bill Barr, right, that's when you have a real problem saying that the president has ultimate and absolute authority over everything. And if he wants to do something through presidential, um, you know, a directive, he has the ability to do that. And that's a that's a very scary thing. But, Michael, I am still trying to get my head around understanding the far right's obsession and love for Putin. I mean, you start to listen to some of them. You really have to you really got to 
grab your stomach and wonder what's going on there, right? From what I understand to these folks, he represents the white Christian ideal in leadership in that he rejects the so-called woke liberalism, that he's projecting strength and that he's defending his borders and punishing his opponents, right? Does it sound familiar? Discuss with me what's behind this, you know, fetishization. Well, one thing he left off was his crusade against gay people. Um, you know, and that's he, correct. The yes, homophobic um, white Christian nationalism resonates with so many of these guys that you would see at CPAC. I mean, it, it, so we're not just talking about the most extreme people who show up at these neo-Nazi events, or uh, we're in Charlottesville screaming, uh, Jews will Jews not will replace, not replace us. us. We're talking about some, actually many, run-of-the-mill conservatives who have gone over to the dark side. And something that I think Americans don't appreciate unless they're part of it is that this has been going on in churches for a long time. And we're not talking about uh, the Marble Collegiate Church or the Episcopal Church in a well-to-do neighborhood in a big city, but these independent churches, evangelical fundamentalist churches, where for 40 years they've been hearing about the impending um, Armageddon, the end of time, that um, Jesus is coming again, and that America must be a Christian nation, a conservative, God-fearing. They don't say white, but that's what they mean, because their Jesus is white nation that is going to be run by Christian principles, but Christian principles as they see them, and they're often um, Old Testament fire and brimstone ideas that they want, and they see in Putin yet another one of these, what they would call broken vessels, a person who's upsetting to view in some context, but whom God is using to carry their message and to carry his word to fruition. So this is the worst kind of zealotry. You've got people who think that they are ordained by God to rule, and that these people, people like Putin and people like Trump, are God's instruments. And that, you know, one person who really believes this is Mike Pence, and Mike Pence um, signed on with Donald because he believes this, and he thought that he could um, use this broken vessel, this bad guy, who was nevertheless going to do God's will to achieve Christian America. Um, this was his plan. I think it's still his plan that he'll run for president, hoping that his experience with Trump will get him the votes in order to gain power and bring about a Christian America. Yeah, and I'm waiting for the leprechaun to drop off of the rainbow <laughs> with a bag of gold in front of my in front of my apartment building. But you know, rest assured, if that was happening, <laughs> Trump would be waiting there, you know, for his for yeah. his cut, you know, for his share, right? Because you know, it's a Trump property. Anyway, so as we're as we're you know winding down the hour, there's so much we can talk about. You know, as we're winding down the hour, I have one last question for you, Mike. Right? Hard to believe an hour goes yeah. by so quick. 
the Russian invasion has been an absolute gift to Donald, right? Un it's unquestionable. Now, just prior, the headlines were about how the House of Trump was crumbling. And finally, after all this time, right, Trump would be held accountable. And I'm referring to all of the yeah. lawsuits that are facing him, even though everybody's bitching and complaining about the district attorney that both Pomerantz and Dunn resigned Let's not forget that they've already brought in somebody yeah. new, right? And that the investigation is continuing and Attorney General Tish James's case is going, as is the Georgia case, as is the D.C. case, and a whole slew of others. His praise for Putin seemed to be the pivot point. Now, despite a change in the news cycle, none of these problems have gone away for Trump. Right. The question is, which one will be the sword that finally guts him in New York State what better than that? Let me ask you, do you think that it's going to be the New York state um, cases, the January 6th case, the Fulton County, Georgia case, which is the one that you think finally, right, finally guts the fish? Because it seems that the only way that we finally get him out of politics is legitimately to put him in prison. I, I think you're right. It is the only way. And and I my money is still on Fulton County because that's a criminal case. Uh, it's not a civil case. I think that his um, influence there is probably less than it is anywhere else in the United States. I think that there's a fierce prosecutor involved in pursuing that case. And I think the evidence is so clear. She'll actually be able to present Brad Raffsenberger and other Republicans as witnesses to it, I, I think it's a very, very strong case. And I think um, it doesn't even have the problem that Tish James does have with mouthing off during her election run. I think, unfortunately, again, that's another case where we all have to play by a higher standard than he does. And she allowed herself to indulge in criticizing him and promising to prosecute him before she was elected. And I, I she did that to get elected and probably because she couldn't resist it. You know, it's very hard to resist getting in a, a punch or two. But that's why I put it in Fulton County. I'm really, really fascinated by that case. She's had a grand jury convened for a long time. Uh, this summer could be very bad for Donald. Yeah. And while I agree with you that the Georgia case, evidentiary, you know, wise, is extremely powerful. You have a tape of his own voice. You have Brad Raffensperger, who will come and testify. There are others, um, Republicans uh, that were involved in this that have probably already given grand jury depositions and so on. My money's still on New York. And it's still on both Tish James and the district attorney's case. Right, everyone, th everyone thinks that the DA's case is over. Mm. It is not, right? It's not. Whatever happened, and I don't know the answer. I wish I did with Pomerantz, Dunn, and now Alvin Bragg, the new DA. I don't know. Eventually, we'll all find out, um, or I will, and then, of course, I'll spill the beans. But, you know, <laughs> but at the end of the day, I still believe that Tish James's case and Alvin Bragg's um, case, which is the criminal part, are both very much alive and they're very damaging. Why? Because with the civil case, you, there's only you know if he's going to take, which we know he will in the depositions, uh, he'll probably take the fifth at least a yeah, thousand yeah. times. 
um, certainly more than Eric Trump did. And then, you know, that can't be used taking the fifth in a criminal case, but it could in a civil case, which will financially wreck him. And as I said to you earlier, while Putin is all about becoming the czar, it's about power, Trump is all about the money. You take away his money, you take away his yeah. identity. And he no longer, he no longer is, and you know you wrote about this, he's no longer the man, you know, behind the, 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 the $10 billion, <laughs> right? I'm an incredible businessman. You basically, you know, um, pulled the, the curtain off of the Wizard of Oz, right? And you realize it's just a little pathetic man pulling a bunch of levers. I still think that Alvin Bragg's case because I know the documents. Yeah. I gave them about 10,000 documents. I know the information that they have. And if he brought the indictment tomorrow, rest assured, I believe wholeheartedly that Trump, and I don't care about whether they said, oh, I'm going to prosecute Trump. They have every right to prosecute Trump. That's their job. And so I still think that a the first is the New York cases with a very close Georgia case, you know, second. And I do think the January 6th is probably, you know, is definitely third, but it's it's farther down that yeah, line. That, the trouble there is, um, and, and members of the committee have told me this, that they think Merrick Garland is just not going to move. And Maybe yeah, it's, um, I don't think he grasps how urgent this is and how dangerous Trump is. And you're right. Um, I think it will require prison uh, to stop him. And, and or yeah, some and form. E yeah, or some form. Even thereof. then, you know, I worry about what his supporters will do uh, if the justice system does its work. Because um, one of the things that many people fear is this rise in right-wing terrorism and uh, maybe a left-wing response to that. So we started out talking about the future and, and I guess we can conclude that it's still a frightening prospect. Yeah, totally yeah. agree with you. Well, Mike, let me thank you for joining me today on Mea Culpa. Um, stay too. safe, enjoy, be well, and I'm definitely looking forward to have you, you on too, again. Michael. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Be good. And now for today's mea culpa. In speaking to Michael D'Antonio, I'm reminded of Donald Trump's primary motivation, and that is to help Donald Trump. The folks he surrounded himself with politically also had zero allegiance to any type of ideal beyond pure self-interest. There's nothing attractive about Donald Trump beyond the ability of his megawatt celebrity and skewed sense of power to help those who stick their hands in his pockets achieve their misbegotten goals as well. His White House was an orgy of naked greed that rivals anything seen in the history of this nation. And Trump is by far the most corrupt federal official to ever walk or breathe. So, in the end, it makes sense that all around him, Trump's aides and operatives were trying to stuff their own fucking pockets. If you're going to sell your soul and betray your country, you might as well get paid for the effort. That's why you had Roger Stone chirping around election fraud, making money doing so. You had Trump's legal team battling for influence and attention by making fucking wild and disproven claims about the election being undermined. Why? So that they can in fact command exorbitant legal fees. It was Rudy who wanted and demanded an insane retainer for his efforts in order to pay off his own legal bills. 
And then you had Trump's primary window into the world, Fox News, doing little to correct the record because all those rubes tuning were driving record ratings. The grifter-in-chief, in spreading his big lie, was also lining his pockets. Because it's all a giant ruse to raise money and keep the whole lie going. Even the Russia invasion of the Ukraine is being exploited by Trump for financial gain. That's the dirty little secret here that no one will admit. It was all about money, the grasping for power, the attempt to overturn the election. I mean, there was no overreaching ideology beyond the naked greed. And now it's too late to stop any of it. Trump has let the genie out of the bottle, and we're in for at least a generation of this nonsense. Political violence will become a norm every election cycle. This is the world Trump wrought, so never forget it. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth.